Welcome to Be The Difference. Brought to you by Back to Back Ministries, celebrating 25 years being a voice for orphan and vulnerable children around the world. We share stories of everyday people who are being the difference in the lives of others. I'm your host, Sammy Matthews, and I'm here with my co-host, Chris Cox. I love conversations with people who are willing to do whatever it takes to be present, and this is one. Today we're talking to Mike Wilson. He is the CEO and founder of My Life Speaks, an organization based in Haiti, and their goal is for every child to experience a family. They have a specific focus on families with children who have special needs, but in general, they're focused on empowering families to be able to stick together. He's also an adoptive dad. He fits in our conversation this month of how can we be the difference through adoption and foster care, both in his personal life and in the work that he does through My Life Speaks. We want you to listen for a few things in this episode. First, we want you to listen for the ways that being present really matters um, in Mike's journey, in his family's journey, in the people that he meets in the country of Haiti's journey. So we want you to listen for how presence matters. We also want you to listen for a moment where I actually quote Mike's website concerning equity within leadership in nonprofits in Haiti. It's a really powerful moment. We want you to listen in, figure out what presence has to do with that. But last, we want you in this particular episode to listen through. I want you to listen through a moment that you may or may not have been aware of at the time or even remembered um, here in 2022. But back in January 12th of 2010, a catastrophic earthquake hit Haiti in such a powerful way that over 200,000 people lost their lives. This 7.0 earthquake was so devastating that many of us found ourselves trying to figure out a way to engage in the story and bring help. Listen through that lens as Mike shares his story with us. Mike, uh, think back. It's January 12th, 2010. You hear Mm -hmm. the news. There's been a devastating earthquake in Haiti. What are your initial thoughts, uh, emotions? How do you react in that moment? So that is uh, a huge thing for us. Um, I can tell you exactly where I was. I was Mm -hmm. sitting at a conference room table, uh, about to leave. We were kind of joking. A bunch of us, we just wrapped up a meeting. We'd actually been having a meeting about Haiti, uh, the the ministry that my wife and I both worked for. We were leading short-term trips to Haiti, so it was on our our hearts. Just to date myself, I had an early like iPhone 3 or whatever they <laughs> were called back in the day. Um, and everybody's phone went off at the exact same time with CNN alerts of there's been a devastating earthquake in Port-au-Prince. Well, we all froze, looked at each other. And another layer to the story is we were in process of adopting a little girl. Mm. And so we had just left Haiti January the uh, January the 10th of 2010 and had turned over all of her paperwork to the U S embassy, uh, had just left everything with them. We had left her. There was a young lady, uh, named Katie who had actually lived with us for the last few years. We had just delivered her to the orphanage where my girls were. Um, and she was going to start an internship and literally she had started the day we left 
And so my wife, Missy, and I just looked at each other and, and our hearts dropped because mm-hmm. along with that, we were in process of, of one full adoption. We had signed to adopt Tia's best friend. Tia's my daughter. Uh, we had uh, we had signed up to adopt her best friend as well uh, because we had just gotten to know her. But again, this was one adoption's almost to the finish line. The other adoption's like day four. Mm-hmm. And we just looked at each other and said, we got to do something. And so uh, chaos ensued. And for the next 24 hours, uh, I don't think we slowed down. We, um, I was able to get on a plane the next day and get to Haiti on a medical evac jet, uh, just through some amazing, gracious people. Uh, they contacted us and said, hey, what do you need? And we looked at, at airplane tickets and immediately everything was was booked and then they were canceled and you got to check the the runway and everything. And a guy just reached out and he said, Hey, I got a plane and I'll get you on it and you just need to get to the airport. And so that's, that's what we did. So that's January the 12th, 2010 is a day I will never forget sitting at that fake wood conference table that was bigger than it should have been. And just having no breath in my lungs. At that moment, like, how long did it take for you to figure out that the girls were okay? Like how long were you in that waiting? Yeah, that, that's a great, uh, great question. We we were calling nonstop for about eighteen hours, and the next morning at seven thirty a.m., we'd gotten back to the office. We'd gone home, slept for a little bit, come come back to the office. I say slept. We'd gone home and 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 worked from there. Got to the office. Uh, a news crew had just got walked in the door and had just asked if could could they film us because. At that point, there weren't a lot of Haitian ministries operating, and we were one of the few ones. And my wife connected uh, to Katie's telephone. And the weird thing is, we would get a connection, but it would be somebody different. And we thought maybe you know, Katie had been hurt, somebody had picked up her phone, that something was going on. So we were trying to communicate with these people, and we were finding out that the lines were crossed. We weren't even talking to people in Port-au-Prince. We were talking to people on the outskirts. Uh, one time we talked to a guy that uh, spoke pretty, pretty good English. And he said, man, I'm not even anywhere near this. How did you call me? Hmm. So it was just one of those things where emotions were really, really high. And when we finally got a hold of, of Katie, then the next morning she had explained what had happened and they were literally uh, within a hundred, 200 yards of where the, the epicenter was documented. Um, my girls were in a five-story orphanage and um, they slept on the fourth, third floor and all five floors compressed. They didn't collapse. It just compressed. They compressed about 12 inches. And so instead of an eight foot ceiling, you had a seven foot ceiling, things like that. And so they grabbed all the children, took them outside to a vacant lot and that's where they were. And there were just hundreds of people in this vacant lot because people were scared to go inside any kind of structure. So that's that's the kind of the, the beginning of our journey right there. In those moments, I, I get into mission-minded, right? Like the objective is get there, get through all the yeah. stops. There's no wall that's gonna like, that's too concrete Absolutely. to run through. Usually when everything becomes reality is when I'm within vision of my children or like I, like I see a face. Can you take me to that moment that yeah. you saw your girls for the first time like in Haiti, how was that? So we landed uh, January the 11th. We landed right after dark. So I think it was like 5.30, 6 o'clock. Um, got off the plane. The plane, literally the moment we got off the bottom, got to the bottom of the steps, it took off. We spent the night on the tarmac there. Um, 
American military was there. The Canadian military was there. The French military was there. Uh, so we were talking to all these people as they were coming in. We watched all the planes come from all over the globe with relief supplies and, and you know, just help the next morning about uh, 8.30 a.m. We were picked up and it took what should have taken us about 35, 40 minutes to get to where we were going. It took us about two and a half, three hours and mm. just carnage. Uh, mm. Buildings in the street bodies I mean, it, it was a it was a it was a war zone uh, or disaster zone i guess would be a better way to put it and so when we pulled up outside and we walked into that that vacant lot um i mean we stick out i mean be real honest with you i mean i'm a six foot three gigantic white guy that that does not really fit in in haiti and so i walked through the gate of this vacant lot and people started yelling and screaming and I looked and Katie, I saw her and she came running up to me and uh, I saw Tia and Naika, who's her best friend and her daughter now. And in that moment, Chris, it's really funny what you just said. The weight of everything hit and I felt mm. like now I've gotten here. Now I've got to protect these people with everything that I have. Mm. And so uh, I did not let them leave my side for days i mean i literally anywhere i went they they were there so yeah i'm so struck by the like singularity of focus like you in the midst of what was chaotic you knew where you needed to go what you needed to do who you needed to see there was mm -hmm. kind of like chris said like there was going to be no wall that was going to stop you i tell people i did what any parent would do and so mm -hmm. the only difference was these were not officially adopted complete children yet, but they were our kids. And mm -hmm. if, if my biological son was in danger in another country, I would get there. I'd do whatever it took. And so that's, that's what we did. Yeah. I love the representation of a father's love that like he will go to any lengths, any, any enter, any disaster zone, any chaos for his kids to go after his Absolutely. kids. And that's what you did. You stayed there until you could bring, at least one of them home, right? What was next in the story? Yeah, so it, it, it was a long story, and my wife kind of became phone central. We, we joke, I can I can joke about it now because we're 12 years removed from it, and I can breathe, but um, we joke because she, at one moment she was on a, on a cell phone, she's on the office phone, and she's talking and she's screaming across the office of, hey, uh, I, I, I've got the Aust Austrian ambassador online too, uh, here at the office, but I've got a helicopter trying to get to Mike on my cell phone. So I need some help. And, and it was just, it was chaos. And so I knew that Tia's adoption was almost complete. So we had a much better chance of getting her out quickly. We had just, like I say, we had just signed our paperwork January the 7th um, for Naika. And so I started going to the airport, trying to find anybody who would listen, would help went to the American embassy and the story at the American embassy was, we would love to help you. In fact, I talked to the woman I had seen just days before and she was overcome because she said, you know, we, we took all of your paperwork and we've now sent it on to the Haitian government. So it's in the rubble of those buildings. You're going to have to start over. Uh, and I'm like, Nope, not going to happen. We got to figure this thing out. And so we, uh, Back and forth, back and forth. And it was not until my wife just was a, and I say this with love, she was a bulldog and she did not give up. And she, her job was 
get them home, get them home, get them home. And she was on the phone with senators and congressmen and presidential candidates. And, and you know, everybody wants a win. But at, at the end of the day, it was a it was a feel good story. And so um, through a crazy, crazy chain of events, uh, and I will not go into all that for you because it's just honestly, it's one of those stories where people are like, are you sure that's right? But um we had a friend who saw, so NBC News was on the ground. They did a story on us. It became a feel-good story. Somebody saw that. They knew people who owned airplanes. They thought they could potentially help. They called somebody who called somebody who called somebody. And within three phone calls, the Secretary of State at the time reached out to the, the Port-au-Prince Embassy and said, hey, do you know this this guy, Mike Wilson? And it's funny, the, she spoke to the lady that I had been meeting with for days. And she said, yeah, I know him and his daughter, Tia. And so within about four hours, we got a phone call. Hey, you need to get to the American embassy. Your visa has been approved. And so we got to the embassy in a borrowed, uh, we, we hitched a ride with NBC News. And <laughs> I had to leave Naika behind, which was the most devastating moment of my entire life trying to explain to this little girl, I'm leaving, but I will be back. And um, Tia and I went down the mountain and got everything taken care of. And we were on a plane that evening. Um, of, of all people, some Mormon missionaries were in country and they said, hey, you want to ride with us? And so my daughter's first airplane ride was on a really, really nice private plane. So <laughs> she, she, she's gotten used to commercial now, but uh, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, that's that's it. I mean, that's how we got out. That was January the nineteenth, and then January the twenty fifth, Naika was put on a plane with one hundred and twenty other kids and taken to uh, Orlando. And I got a phone call early on the the morning of, or late on the evening of the twenty fifth. Please come get your daughter. And I got there on the twenty sixth, and I picked her up. Use the word earlier to just describe the carnage that you're driving past. And you're you're driving toward reconciliation when you're driving past just devastation. How did you reconcile that part of the story that is like, you know, like, did you ever ask that question of like, God, why am I getting this grace, favor, oh, yeah. opportunity? And how do you reconcile that part? The hardest moment was getting to where my daughters were and two streets over a school of over 300 children had collapsed. And as we drove by that street, watching a front end loader pick up bodies and put them in a dump truck and watch lines of dump trucks leave, that was the most surreal, guilt-ridden moment of why me? Why, mm -hmm. why in the world? Why couldn't it have been me, not these kids? Why? Why couldn't it have been people who deserved it? And, you know, it, all those things that play in your mind and just, that was it. That was the, that was the most realistic, difficult moment ever. I think at times we tell stories and they end up compartmentalized, right? Of yeah. the beauty of a moment that happened or salvation in this thing that, and then, and then the devastation, but they're not written like that. They're written interwoven yeah. with each other and we, and we have to figure them out from there. And how did you do that? How did that start to play out for you as a way to maybe even deepen your investment in ministry or in investment, you know, economically or in, in the country of Haiti? Did that provoke, like move you toward more rooted in country and culture? Yeah. Um, 
That's a great question because what, what we did was we then went into our little huddle of our new family because we went from a family of three biological sons to five children overnight mm-hmm. um, or wow. within a period of six days, seven days. And uh, we just, we, we tried to figure out, okay, number one, this is our new dynamic. This is our new family. How do we do this the best possible? But the more we looked at our daughters in those early, early days, the more we knew. And and, and my wife says it this way. We knew we were not filling the Haiti size void in our heart, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, it was there's something deeper out there. So we went more into the mission trip world. We went more into getting on the ground. We went more into partnering then with that uh, orphanage and and kind of uncovering some of the just the, the difficulties there, the the understaffed, the underserved, the under-resourced, uh, what was going on. And then that led us into understanding the special needs side of the equation, which uh, is really big for us because our, our we have a, uh, our second biological son has severe special needs. And so my other two biological sons are drastically different. I mean, they've grown up with a, a brother with severe special needs, so that's all they know. So they don't mm. see that. My daughters came in the house. They saw that immediately. And the more we dove into Haiti, the more we realized, man, there's there's some something we're not seeing here. And once you get a layer or two back, then you begin to uncover those things. The kids with special needs that are hidden or who are um, enslaved or who are under a, a porch because, you know, the, the community says they're they're not worthy. And so that that for us, that. That's a long way to answer that question, Chris, and I apologize, but it's it's this the best I can say. It it interwo- it began then to tie our entire life into Haiti, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, because your your family story was already involved with Haiti. You <laughs> said you had done mission trips. Mm-hmm. You had been obviously pursuing adoption there, and then yep. this experience bringing both the girls into your home and the what I would assume was extremely traumatic experience of walking through that country right after that devastating earthquake kind of tied your hearts and your family story into it. And out of that was born My Life Speaks, right? Yeah. So um, so that, that part when my girls came home and our son was special needs, he had his own bedroom and they would walk to the threshold of his room, but they would never go in. Um, the Haitian culture is very voodoo focused and mm. or very voodoo influenced, if you will. Um there's this belief now that I've been there for a long time. I know that the answer is the belief is you can catch it. Uh, you can, you can get it. And it's, it's all because of a curse. That's why people are like that. It's like in John nine, nine, when the disciples are walking with Jesus and they see a blind man, well, whose fault is it that this man's blind? Is it, you know, mom's fault? Is it dad's fault? Did he do something wrong in the womb? Whatever. Um, and so my girls would not interact with my son, but the more that, they got around him the more they saw, wait a minute, they love him. They He's treated normally. He's treated as part of the family. And so My Life Speaks was born kind of at a, at a crossroads there. Our son Lane is nonverbal, uh, doesn't walk, doesn't talk, went blind, but just had some, some real complications post-birth as a, a super preemie back in the day. And our love for Haiti. And so the My Life Speaks portion came the name came from Lane of 
even though you would not understand him. And if you read about him on paper, it's, oh, I'm so sorry you're going through that. But if you meet him, it's, oh my goodness, what a blessing. That is the embodiment of pure joy. So all that to say, we fell in love with Haiti and we were in love with individuals with special needs and we wanted to find a way to marry those two. Uh, And we honestly thought it would be from a distance, but God had a completely different plans. One of the things that I'm really, really intrigued by from uh, your website, and we don't often quote things from our guest websites (laughs) when we, when we speak, but I'm just going to read a quote to you. And what I want to hear back is why it was important to include this on the site specifically. It says, our goal has never been to come in and Americanize the culture of Haiti. Rather, we celebrate Haitian culture while investing in locals to lead others and together evaluate the future of Haiti. Why is that really important? And what does it say that sets you apart maybe from other approaches to international missions? So here's the thing. Uh, You go to Haiti. If you've ever been to Haiti, if you've ever come out of the Port-au-Prince airport, you know how chaotic it is. Uh, People who have traveled have told me Usually you leave the poverty, Hmm. but in Haiti, you never leave the poverty. So Hmm. I'm just kind of trying to paint a picture of of trash on the streets, um, kids in disarray, people just in in rags. Um, I say all of that to say, to answer your question, the American version of things is you look at a place with dirt, gravel roads, you look at a place with no electricity, you look at a place with not great water systems, and you think, Man, everybody, everybody needs a, a new TV. A flat screen TV is not going to fix things. An Xbox is not going to fix this. Um, even a, a, a brand new computer is not going to fix this. What's going to fix it is a Haitian-led movement that says, oh, we should pick up after ourselves. Oh, let's create a place for trash to go. It's empowering the people to own where they live. And for so long, Haitians have just been told, you should do this, you should do that. Yeah, I think there's so much wisdom. And I think a lot of times that can feel counterintuitive when mm-hmm. the, the goal is to help. And sometimes we just have a, a little bit of a, a misfire on what actually is helping and what is hurting. And part of what your family chose to do is is move there and live alongside the people who you were serving, be in community with Haitians, lift up the Haitian culture by building relationship. What was that like Mm -hmm. for you all? And why was that important? I I just, the only thing I can say is God has a sense of humor. Uh, Who in the world adopts two daughters and then four years later takes them right back to the country they were adopted from. Um, But we, um, we adopted our girls we knew that there was something bigger out there for us. And when we launched My Life Speaks on the Ground in Haiti in 2012, we thought we could do it from a distance. And we realized more and more we wanted to be on the ground there. We wanted with everything in us. God had birthed not only this passion for the Haitian people, but for the Haitian culture, the Haitian community. And getting there on the ground and learning it was just a huge portion of what we needed to do. And so in 2014, my oldest son graduated high school on a Saturday and we moved to Haiti on a Wednesday. And it was hard. I would love to tell you that it was rainbows and lollipops. Uh, it was, it was, I don't know, it was, it was bad. Um, 
with that first night, we, we, we didn't have anything in our house. Uh, and so we, we slept in a, in a borrowed room. We were fortunate enough to have a, a fan that worked. Uh, and we put a, a citronella candle beside that fan and woke up with soot all over our faces. And they just, it just was kind of a, you know, a new moment. And we just, we realized from that point, we weren't going to be able to kind of going back to that Americanized thing. We weren't going to be able to Americanize our lives there. We were going to have to be just, just on the ground. We were just going to have to learn to live as Haitians. From that experience of living with, not coming to, to serve or to do for, what, what have you learned about others? Well, first of all, um, 1 Thessalonians 2.8 was kind of the thing we put on our doorpost where Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, we loved you so much we shared not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And he says we were delighted to share not only the gospel, but our lives as well. And that, that was kind of the thing that we lived by. And I realized when you start really kind of looking at it on an up-close level when it's in your face, People are people. Uh, people want to be loved. People want to be seen as worthy. Uh, and once you can get someone to believe that that they are truly created in the image of God, then there's no stopping what they can do. I wanted to follow up and ask this question. Uh, it sounds yeah. like My Life Speaks really viewed the vantage point of enablement and tried to flip it toward empowerment. What are some practical ways that that's taken hold? Uh, there are a lot of organizations that say that we're against a certain philosophy or we're not for there. There are a few organizations that actually create practices to empower people to have a voice within a culture or a context. How has My Life Speaks really done that? First of all, I'm I'm doing backflips in my heart because that's a real that's a real statement that you just made. Um, hmm. So. We learned early on, uh, we went to our first big Haiti meeting with a bunch of ministries and a bunch of organizations and you know, all, it was like the who's who of Haiti. We were invited. We were the new kids at the table. And so we went, myself, my wife, and we took our Haitian director and we were so excited for him to be involved with all of these people and the, the way Haiti was changing. And I guess naive, naively, I thought it's kind of the secret sauce that everybody's got and they're, they're doing it and it's happening in other places. We just haven't heard it yet. We walked into that room with 40 other organizations and we were the only people that brought a Haitian with us. Oh, wow. Hmm. So we made a promise at that point we would never ever ever make a decision for haiti without a haitian what have you learned about god i've learned that god is a very patient god i've learned that god is a very direct god he, he doesn't run away from difficult conversations or conflict i literally came face to face with god in the middle of a sugarcane field mm. uh, it was hot I was getting eaten up by bugs. I was looking for a quiet place in Haiti of all places to shoot a 30 second video for an Instagram thing that we were doing. And I was so frustrated. Every time I started to hit the record button, a cow would move or a chicken would crow, whatever was happening. And I'm just like, come on. And I'm just angry. And I remember I turned to, to, to go and move and I fell in the mud and I'm just, I'm just all in it. And, and this quiet, whisper of, I'm here. I'm right here. 
I'm not leaving. Mm. Uh, you're not here by yourself. And yeah, you, you can talk about the stupid mud and the stupid bugs and all this stuff. But man, I'm here. And so that's that's the thing I would say I've seen the most is his just graciousness to walk me back mm. and say, hey, this, this is what I need you to see. And sometimes I'm quick and sometimes I'm not. What are some of the things that keep you up at night now? I tend to worry. Mm. I worry about Haiti. What is the future of Haiti going to look like? Uh, you know, we, we relocated in December. Um, family family was reunified, all of us, uh, December 30th of last year because uh, some gang violence and we had people, some of our director, our, one of our directors and, and one of our security guards get kidnapped and held for ransom. And gang violence is ugly. And United Nations just put out a report that in May of 2020, over 200 people were kidnapped and held for ransom in Haiti. Um, and that's just known. I mean, we know so much more goes on. So my earthly, fleshly side says I'm really worried about the people that I care about or really worried. Do they see me as deserting them because we re- relocated? Or do they understand that it's best for their, for them and their safety for me not to be there? That's the thing that's keeping me up at night now is how are we going to continue to share and show the love that God has given us and how are we going to share the gospel and our very lives as well with the community being 1,500 miles away from them. And fortunately, God's provided some incredible Haitian leadership uh, that have bought into our vision and own it so much that they are they are taking it. Mm. You know, to follow that up, what would you give as a word of encouragement to men and women, families who are just reading about the volatility of the infrastructure, the economy, the the world around, the spiritual warfare even around Haiti. What would you say about the heart and the passion of the Haitian people that you're connected to? I think for the for those people that are for the first time or maybe for the second or third time hearing about this, don't give up on Haiti because mm-hmm. there are some unbelievable people there. Uh, there are people who risk their lives every day in our ministry to make sure others are taken care of. There are people who leave areas on the outskirts of gang-infested lands to get to our ministry center so that they can go and interact with the people in our community. There are people who say you should not um, give you should not give up your child because I did that one time and it's the worst mistake I ever made. Mm. We have people who are willing to have very difficult, hard conversations. And then what I'll say is there are people who are sold out believers. And in Haiti, when you take a stand against voodoo and you say, I do not follow voodoo, I do not follow whatever spirit, you're making a pretty bold statement. Mm. So because you're making that bold statement, please be praying for the people uh, to be strong in their faith. Uh, Because it's very easy to be misled in Haiti. But once someone comes to know Jesus and the word is converted, when they are converted, there is an expectation, not only by the the Haitian church, but the community that you're going to act differently. So um, don't give up on the Haitian people. That's that's what I would say more than anything. I think early on you you said the words that I'm going to resonate with um, after just that those concluding thoughts. You're standing in a field and you kind of turn around when life's at its hardest and God says, I'm still here. Yeah. And that that's what I'm hearing 
you say again on behalf of the Haitian people that in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of voodoo around us, that God is still saying, I'm still here. And we want to close by just saying thank you, Mike, for choosing to still be here too. As a dad, I want to say thank you for never giving up on your children. As a follower of Christ, for never giving up on the the kingdom mindset that everyone belongs. And last, as a human, for not giving up on equity that you see in other humans who have different cultural and different uh, vantage points and different traditions and different histories. We are, uh, as a Be The Difference community, thankful that you're staying in the fight. And thanks for sharing your story with us today. So, Chris, we just heard you give an incredible thank you to Mike. Yeah. But I have to ask you, did you get a little bit emotional there at the end? Yeah, I don't know that it was a little bit emotional. I think like I needed a moment after we finished recording this because being able to have an opportunity um, to say thank you to someone who I could just maybe empathize a little bit um, not only as a father so that there, there's a topic mm-hmm. there of there's something that changed in me when I became a father there's just something that was maybe reserved just for my wife Sarah like in, in our relationship that all of a sudden got multiplied for these tiny, tiny humans that were going to like live on this earth but that wasn't the only thing that happened like God cr- like created this thing in me that then I was supposed to give away to others and the moment that Mike was trying to get on a plane, I was too. Mm. And it was because we had a site in Haiti with back to back in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I was texting one of our coworkers, Brian Berkey, going, Hey, I feel like we're supposed to be there. But I couldn't get there. Like my doors closed, his doors were open. So there was two vantage points of what you felt me getting emotional. One was this dad piece that I'm like, I just want to say thank you for being present with your children. There was another of like, when it's going down, I want to be there. And you were able to be there. And so I resonated with the effort, his relentlessness to be present with his children and with children that had been entrusted to him. Um, Because outside of my own family now, I have that same feeling. Yeah, I also really saw some parallels in your story with him in also the fight for equity and equitable teams and equitable staff teams and I loved getting to see you connect mm. on in that moment too, on that pursuit that you both hold really strongly and really um, intentionally. Yeah, in that I think there was a there was a key moment where I thought it's powerful when someone from majority culture with the type of relationships and power that we can hold here in the U.S. as like white men, we, we tend to have access to a lot of resources and relationships. And historically, we're rarely the minority in a room. Has something written intrinsically in their mission statement so powerful toward creating opportunities for leadership to rise, mm-hmm. not for leadership that looks a certain type of way to rise. And that resonates with me. It doesn't matter what city, country, nation, household, um, if we're, if we're going to pull that theme in of presence mattering, which I, I do, I can't know the vantage point of someone if they're not in the room to show me where they're standing. Because if I take their place, I just cut them out of the story. And that is, I just 
resonated with Mike so much in his perspective of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was so interesting to start this conversation in 2010 because I actually remember hearing about Mike mm. on the news. I remember hearing the story. I was in college still. I remember hearing the story of a dad who got on a plane and went to be present and bring home his little girl. And to me, it was such a picture of of God and how he will go into any situation, any darkness, any destruction to go after his kids. And I thought of it more as like the daughter perspective mm-hmm. of God coming after me and a father coming after me. But I know that you were listening to that from the father perspective. So how did, how did you process that? Yeah, I, um, I processed it again, not, not, not really my own children. Yes. I'm like, I mm-hmm. like, and I say my as in entrusted to like have three that get to spend all the waking minutes with me. Um, but my, in that moment, the father part of me kicked into the moment, like the most tragic moment that I've experienced is when a mom called me because her son had just been shot and was going to a hospital. And that's what I read, like the father piece of when Mike was talking, it resonated in that moment of, I gotta get there. I've gotta get there and do whatever she needs. I need to make sure that he's okay. We need to like navigate like this. You just go into a mode because not being present wasn't an option. That That's mm-hmm. probably what I resonated. And that'd be the question I would ask you is if you, like when you think about your journey and even what Mike sparked in you, can you think of a moment where being present, be, not being present just wasn't an option? Yeah, I a couple months ago I had a friend whose daughter was hospitalized and mm. she's really young and it was really scary. And I was about 10 minutes away and I just wanted to be at the hospital, but with COVID you couldn't. Mm. And so I remember texting her and saying, I'm 10 minutes away. Like I'm right here, I'm 10 minutes away, you need anything, you text me. And eventually she texted me and, needed a really specific request of the certain kind of milk that her daughter likes to drink. And mm. I said, I'll get it and I'll show up. Cause I think in those moments of crisis, we know that to have someone by our side makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. And to have someone there with us can calm us, can um, make a really hard crisis moment feel less scary. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that sometimes we can draw near or become proximate out of presence. Mm-hmm even if we can't physically be there. And mm-hmm. that's the same thing, like the, the illustration I used in a minute ago, only one person was allowed in the hospital because it was right in COVID moments, but someone knew we were outside. And I think that's a huge takeaway for us mm-hmm. today from this episode is that we could believe a lie that we have to become Mike. Yeah, and, and move that, to another country. Holy, I, I listened to him and even thinking about my life speaks on that next level as he's sharing of like, oh yeah, we went to Haiti and we did this and then we got a family and now we couldn't stay in Haiti and we're Haiti and we're sad about that, but we had to come back because, and we're like, you know, relocated to Tennessee, not because we want to, but because mm-hmm. we have to. And by the way, we've created this leg of a nonprofit to help those who don't get to experience life with the same needs being met as others. And we may call them special. I'm like, wait a minute, you've adopted, you've gone to another country, you've been on mission, you have, you're navigating a nonprofit for special needs. As a family, that bar is too unique. I won't even say too high. Mm -hmm. I'll say it's too unique for me. But what's practical is to be able to think about the moments and the people in my life that I can't help but be present with. And we can stand outside hospitals and we can get milk for the right, Mm -hmm. like the right kind of milk. Like 
I'm inspired to do the small things because Mike's family can do some of these large things. Because I don't know that everybody's story is supposed to have the large things. Mm -hmm. I think also when I think about Mike's story, it does feel big and maybe like not a situation that many of us would be in to get on a plane and go to Haiti, but we can get in a car and drive across town. Like sometimes we just go. Like sometimes we just go because to be present for people, it matters. It matters that we show up. It matters that that we're near and I think Mike's story illustrates that on a big scale, but that's something that each of us can do. When we think about adoption and foster care in the stories of people who have shown up for other people, that's part of what makes adoption and foster care possible mm-hmm. is because people show up for kids and then other people show up to support the people who show up for kids. And there's a place for all of us in that. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. As we um, close this kind of this conversation, I think I'm just reminded that tragedy and crisis can bring an opportunity to be present and i say it's the goal but we can look for opportunities to be present in the crisis and in the tragedy around us we can show up even when we're not the lead in the story and we can be around to be able to deepen our presence and then we should leave this conversation asking do i have the margin to be present And when I start to look at the margin in my life, I can find a way to be present, whether it's as a father, a mother, an aunt, a best friend, a foster parent, someone who's on a journey toward adoption. But just showing up and being present can bring a lot of transformation. There's information about Mike and My Life Speaks in the show notes. We encourage you to check it out and learn more about this incredible organization and the ways that they are present for those in Haiti. We'll see you on the next episode.